It is a, uh, a privilege to be with you all. I count it a great honor to be uh, able to address the women of Grace Community Church, and it's a delight for me to teach on this particular subject, an overview of the biblical covenants. I'm not in control of my PowerPoint this morning, so we're going to pray for Alex as well. Um, just a little housekeeping as we begin. I do hope you've received uh, the handouts available, whether electronically or, or physically. One of those is a table uh, entitled An Overview of the Biblical Covenants. It's designed to be a, an, an introduction to the various aspects of each of the covenants, uh, key scriptures, the setting, like what was happening in redemptive history when the covenants were instituted, uh, who the parties of the covenant were, what are the provisions or obligations or promises of the covenant, um, the, the nature of the covenant, which we'll talk about, the covenant sign, and how the covenant is fulfilled. No way I could get through that in 40 minutes. So that document is intended for you to take home and in your own study time to look up Every one of those scripture references, and it'll make for a good three to four week study in your personal worship times. The other handout is an outline for the lecture this morning, which uh, along with the PowerPoint, I hope, helps you follow along. And uh, if you have a, a physical copy, maybe gives you a place to take notes. Um, but, and before we jump right in, uh, Lauren asked that I give a, a brief reminder of the historical context and a little bit of a reorientation to Hebrews as you begin a new semester of study. So the historical context of Hebrews is that there are Jewish professing Christians who are considering abandoning Christianity and returning to Judaism for a number of reasons, but primary among them in order to avoid persecution. And so that's the setting in which Hebrews is written. And the main point of the book is to exalt Christ and his mediation of the new covenant as being better than the old covenant. It is to demonstrate the inability of the Mosaic Covenant to save and sanctify man. The author says, if you're tempted to go back and hide out in Judaism to avoid suffering as a Christian, well, let me tell you, there is nothing there for you. The Mosaic Covenant cannot save you. The sacrifices cannot save you or sanctify you. The law, Hebrews 7.19 says, made nothing perfect. So that covenant has been entirely fulfilled and superseded in Christ, who is the mediator, chapter 8, verse 6, of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And if you come to him, he's saying, you partake in that new and better covenant, which forgives your sins and fits you for heaven, even if it means that you suffer for a little while. So don't forsake the better for the lesser. And so the main points of Hebrews is that Jesus is the great messenger, superior to the angels. You see that in the opening chapters. To which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, let all the angels worship him, and so on. Jesus is the great prophet and redeemer. Yes, Moses was the prophet of God to Israel and the redeemer of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. But Jesus is even greater than Moses, chapter 3, verse 3, worthy of more glory than Moses, who was faithful as a slave, but Christ was faithful as a son. Jesus is the great high priest, superior to the the Levitical priesthood, greater even than Melchizedek, the king priest of Salem. 
And Jesus is the once for all sacrifice superior to the Mosaic sacrifices. You see that all throughout the book, but really chapters 9 and 10, especially once for all, obtained eternal redemption. He sat down. The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but he has perfected for all time those who draw near to God through him. And so Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is supremely worthy of all our worship, adoration, and trust. It teaches us that he is the only perfectly sufficient sacrifice for sin. And therefore, we cannot trust in our works or our religious efforts to be accepted with God. And it teaches us that suffering for Christ is a means of sweet fellowship with him and and that enduring such suffering brings a great reward. Now, with that as a recap, let's get to the biblical covenants. I've borrowed heavily in my preparation from my teachers at the Master's Seminary, who I think have done an admirable job on this topic. Dr. Irv Busnitz has a great article in the Master's Seminary Journal from 1999, where he gives one or two sentence summaries of each covenant, which I am shamelessly borrowing for today. And uh, in that article, he says... Let no one underestimate the importance and significance of a correct understanding of the divine covenants. It is much more than an intellectual pursuit. They provide a most foundational theological anchor for understanding God's working in human history. So what is God's working in human history? Well, Scripture represents all of human history as God's kingdom program. At the beginning of creation... You have the creation mandate in Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and so on. Man is commissioned to rule creation in righteousness as God's vice regents on the earth. He is not physically present, visibly present. The image of God that makes God visible is man, and so they are to rule and reign in his place in a way that tells the truth about who he is. And that lasts for how long? Not long. Immediately in chapter 3, mankind falls into sin. They do not steward that kingdom commission as they were commanded to. And so right away, you've got a problem. God intends to carry out his kingdom through mankind, and his vice regents are totally failing. And then you have the promise of restoration in Genesis 3.15. God promises that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent And he will bring salvation from the curse of sin. He will bring the restoration of man into the image of God, this image which was marred by sin. He will bring restoration to fellowship with God. And he will bring the restoration of man as vice regents of the kingdom of God. Jesus, the king, restores humanity to its right role as image bearers and vice regents of God's kingdom. Not first by fitting us to do that role, but by being that very thing that we failed to be. Christ, the image of the invisible God, the king over all creation. And then, basically from Genesis 4 to Revelation 20, verse 15, the whole of redemptive history is the progress of God's kingdom being restored. And on that highway of redemptive history, there are many checkpoints, checkpoints that sort of punctuate God's acting in history. That's really what the covenants are. They are checkpoints for key developments in the unfolding of the redemptive plan of God. 
And I want to give you some preliminary helps for interpreting the covenants. There's a lot of disagreement among various schools of theology and even within various schools of theology about the nature of the biblical covenants and how they're fulfilled. And it helps to keep just a few principles in mind as you approach the subject. First, there is the notion of conditionality. Is the covenant that we are speaking about conditional or unconditional? There are unconditional covenants where God makes promises that he will fulfill whether his covenant people are disobedient or obedient to their covenant stipulations. And there are also conditional covenants, just one actually, the Mosaic covenant, the blessing of which, or blessings plural of which, are conditioned upon the people's obedience. And that sounds simple enough, but there are sometimes conditional elements to what are ultimately unconditional covenants. And so the Davidic covenant, for example, contains an unconditional promise that David will never lack a ruler to sit on the throne of Israel, Psalm 89, 30 to 37. But who's on the throne of Israel right now? No one. There's an unconditional promise that a a son of David will reign everlastingly from Jerusalem. That, That will be so no matter what man does. But Scripture also says that if Israel doesn't keep the provisions of the covenant to walk in righteousness, there may be a temporary lack of a king in Israel. We saw that happen with the Babylonian exile. We see that at the present time as the current nation of Israel is apostate, having rejected their Messiah. But though Israel's disobedience to the conditional elements of the Davidic covenant results in lack of temporal blessings, ultimately, their disobedience will not thwart God's unconditional promise for the son of David to reign forever. That's the conditional, unconditional distinction. Secondly, there is the concept of initial partial fulfillment. This is something that arises out of the fact that the Old Testament seemed to prophesy only one coming of Messiah. The present intervening age between the two comings of Christ was a mystery that the New Testament says wasn't revealed until the last days, until the coming of the new covenant era. And so as you read Old Testament passages, you notice that certain promises have been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ, but then other promises in those same passages, sometimes in the middle of the same sentence, haven't yet been fulfilled. They, they'll be fulfilled at the second coming. And so the illustration that we get, it gets used is that it's sort of like two mountain peaks that you were looking at from a great distance and at a particular angle, and the peaks kind of line up with one another so that you see what looks like one mountain. But then when you get to the proper vantage point, you see that there's quite a bit of distance in between those peaks. That's what, the, the, what we have in Christ's first and second advent from the perspective of the Old Testament prophets. And so, for example, the promises of the new covenant, like regeneration and the Spirit's permanent indwelling and the forgiveness of sins, are being fulfilled today in the church. At the same time, the church does not take part in the physical blessings promised right alongside those spiritual aspects, rest in the land of Israel, material prosperity over enemies, and so on. So that is to say that only part of the new covenant blessings are being fulfilled today. At the second coming, Israel will, be, will partake of all the new covenant blessings promised to them. And so while the new covenant has been initially and partially fulfilled in the church, its complete fulfillment awaits Israel's restoration 
at Jesus' return. And we can work through all the covenants with ways that they are initially and partially fulfilled. Christ is the son of David. He is the one who has been anointed as the Davidic king. We'll see more about that in a moment. And, when he, and while he is reigning over all things in heaven at this very moment, he is not reigning on the throne of David in Jerusalem, which is what was promised. He is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promise initially and partially, but not completely and fully until the Son of Man comes in his glory with all the angels with him, and then, he says, he will sit on his glorious throne, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. And then a third principle is to make a distinction between fulfillment in Christ versus fulfillment because of Christ. And for the sake of time, I'll skip that and let you read those I'll read about that in the notes. Uh, And as we transition into the covenants themselves, then, my goal here is just to expose you to what the biblical covenants are and where you read about them in the scriptures so that when when they appear in your regular Bible reading, you'll be able to connect the dots along the story of redemption. Oh, okay, so that's a reference to the Abrahamic covenant. Oh, okay, that's a, a reference to the Davidic promise, that kind of thing. And as we go through, feel free to refer to both handouts insofar as you find them helpful. Hopefully, they'll be helpful afterwards as well. So for the Noahic Covenant, the key scriptures start in Genesis chapter 6. On the precipice of the flood, God comes to Noah and says, I'm going to destroy the earth, but I'll save you and your family. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you and of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. And then Genesis 8, after Noah has come through the flood, it says, he built an altar to Yahweh and took of every clean animal and every clean bird offered and offered sacrifices. And Yahweh says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. In other words, man is going to be wicked. There's nothing that's going to change that except one day through the Savior, of course. So God says, look, if I'm going to destroy them every time I find them acting unspeakably wickedly, we're going to have a flood every weekend. And he says, but I'm not going to do that. Verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. And so summer, fall, winter, spring, morning, evening, morning, all of that continues ultimately because of God's covenant with Noah and with all creation as an extension, which just as a parenthesis means that Climate change is not going to destroy the earth, uh, you know, unless it's the means by which God is going to bring his judgment, in which case we welcome it, right? It, we, we are not going to, God is not going to violate his, uh, his covenant with Noah to break the cycle of the seasons and the day and night until it's his time to recreate the earth, create a new earth, res- rescue us all from sin, and uh, get into Revelation 21 and 22. So in this sense, the Noahic covenant is absolutely universal. The, the other covenants are very focused on God's people particularly, but the Noahic covenant is cosmic, and it's with the redeemed and unredeemed. The sun shines, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And so you see a fulfillment even in God's common grace. 
And then again in Genesis 9, 11, I establish my covenant with you and all flesh shall never again be cut off by water of the flood. What does 2 Peter 3 say it'll happen by next time? Fire. And that, that's the Noahic promise. God is never going to destroy the earth again by flood. And you can look more to that summary from Dr. Buzness in your notes. As to key verses in Hebrews, which I want to highlight as we go, uh, references to the, to the Noahic covenant are sparse, but there is a reference to Noah in chapter 11 and verse 7 and to God's promise to spare him if he builds the ark and the, the comment that he acted in faith. So the response to God's covenant is faith-driven obedience. It's not sort of lackluster, okay, well, if he's going to do it all, I'll just sit back. No, if God extends kindness to me, grace, mercy to me, then I will walk, follow, follow after him walking in obedience. And then as we turn to the Abrahamic covenant, we find quite a few key scriptures on this. Uh, Genesis 12 is kind of a ground zero Uh, Now Yahweh said to Abraham, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all, uh, all the families of the earth will be blessed And so you see these key components of the Abrahamic covenant. There's a land, a great nation, and a universal blessing. Genesis 13 reiterates this promise of land and seed, or sometimes translated descendants or offspring. Verse 15, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can be numbered. And again, repeated in chapter 15, verse 8, look at the stars, try to count them. So shall your seed or descendants be. And fifteen eighteen, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the Euphrates. So in the Abrahamic covenant, God demonstrated his unmerited favor and unilateral choice of Israel as the apple of his eye, a special people called out from among the nations through whom the Messiah would come. That is the great nation that God would make from Abraham, the nation of Israel. And in that nation, uh, that nation of seed would come the great seed through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed in salvation, even as Paul says in Galatians 3. The coming of Christ and the accomplishment of the salvation of the elect comes in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant promise. It functions as a sort of, the Abrahamic promise does, functions as a sort of anchor promise that sets God's program on its course through which these later covenants and promises will come and build on and fulfill. And of course, salvation by the new covenant fulfills them all. Key verses in Hebrews for the Abrahamic covenant include an excellent section on the second half of Hebrews, uh, in the second half of Hebrews 6, where it says, uh, for when God made the promise to Abraham, that is the Abrahamic covenant, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, there's unilateral, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply you. That's a summary of the unconditional Abrahamic promise to multiply Abraham by giving him numberless descendants and to bless him. I will bless you and I'll bless all those who bless you. And so 6.15, having patiently waited, 
he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them give an oath uh, as confirmation, as an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, where have we taken refuge? In Christ, so that we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So you see what he's doing? He's appealing to these Jewish Christians uh, understanding of the Abrahamic promise, which was the identification of Israel. We have Abraham for our father, the Pharisees said. The Abrahamic covenant was the covenant of circumcision. This is how you belonged to the nation. And, and these Jewish Christians are being tempted to revert back to the covenant with Moses as a means of becoming a son of Abraham. The author of, of Hebrews is saying, when God gave the promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. He was so adamant that this would happen. You don't need to fear that his promise won't come true, even if the Romans persecute you. So don't lose hope. Endure and trust God's promise. This hope we have, verse 19, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. And even that within the veil is a reference to the Mosaic covenant, which we'll turn to now. There's also a reference to Abraham in chapter 11, but we'll move on. The Mosaic covenant comes on to the scene in Exodus 19 to 24. There are a few key scriptures in that section to highlight. He says in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then immediately you have Sinai. God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which summarize the whole of the Mosaic law. And then the laws themselves come after that, and something like a summary of those key principles come in Exodus chapter 24, where Moses takes the book of the covenant, the the law that God has just given him, and he reads it in the hearing of the people, which is a very bilateral, conditional arrangement. I'm reading to you what you are obligated to do. And they say in chapter 24, verse 7, all that Yahweh has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And that lasts for all of 30 seconds. And the first chance they get, they pop out the golden calf. But here they are, they're saying, I agree. I take on the stipulations of the covenant. I will be obedient. And so, verse 8, Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which Yahweh has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then he sprinkles the blood on the people. And that imagery ought to sound familiar. Hebrews speaks of a conscience being sprinkled clean. It speaks, it speaks of the sprinkled blood that speaks better than the blood of Abel. Ezekiel 36 says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, in part as the new covenant promise. And the phrase, the blood of the covenant, where do we hear that each month? This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. References to the sprinkled blood and blood poured out are ways of demonstrating the superiority of the new covenant, which has come in Christ over the Mosaic Covenant. And of course, you can't miss the whole of Leviticus, which is the heart and soul of Israel's ceremonial worship, according to the Mosaic Covenant. 
But though you can't miss it, I'm going to skip it for the sake of time. You can read Leviticus in a couple of weeks when your reading plan gets you to Leviticus. <laughs> it's my favorite Old Testament book, but I'm a nerd. So in, in summary of the Mosaic Covenant, God revealed his holiness and the heinousness of sin. How? By showing this law, according to my character, is the perfect standard of holiness. If you break it at any point, you are guilty of breaking all of it, and something has to die because of it. God displays his own holiness and man's sinfulness. The daily sacrifices provided a constant reminder for the need of shedding blood for the remission of sin, for the propitiating of God's wrath. And where do you see that in Hebrews? Everywhere, because again, the main point is to show you the inferiority of the Mosaic Covenant to the New Covenant. So you have several verses, chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment, which is the Mosaic Covenant law, because of its weakness and uselessness. What words to describe the Mosaic Covenant? And in parenthesis, for the law made nothing perfect. The law couldn't sanctify you. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Chapter 8, verses 7 and 13, for if that first covenant had been faultless, and so the implication is that it's not faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. So unique among the covenants that God makes with his people is that the Mosaic covenant comes to an end. It's temporary. It's revocable. It ceases. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that it fades away because something better has come. And then chapter 9 uh, verses 18 to 21, therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood for when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop And here it is, we just read that, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. So you see here again, these overtures of the Mosaic covenant in Hebrews. When you read Hebrews 9, you should think Exodus 19 and 24. And then in 10, 1 to 4, it says, for the law, which was a way of referring to the Mosaic covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never make perfect those who draw near through sacrifices. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed to be ceased to, wouldn't have ceased to be offered, but they offer them over and over again. Verse four, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So where do we look for blood that takes away sins? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We look to Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, whose blood speaks better. Now, the priestly covenant gets overlooked all the time. There is widespread confusion on this. It's true that it's rather obscure and there's not a ton of revelation on it. But the priestly covenant isn't what you might think. It is not the covenant with the Levitical priests. The Levitical priests in Leviticus are part of the ceremonial worship of the Mosaic covenant. The priestly covenant was made with Phinehas, who is the grandson of Aaron uh, and the son of Eliezer. And when Israel was committing brazen idolatry by intermarrying with the Gentiles, Phinehas was zealous for the Lord's glory, and he took a spear, and he drove it through the abdomens of an Israelite man and a Moabite woman, 
killing them both. So you understand what they were doing. That's in Numbers 25. Because he was zealous for the purity of God's people, in response, God says, therefore, Numbers 25 say, therefore say, behold, I give him, Phineas, my covenant of peace. And it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And so where does that show up? Well, actually, that shows up in the millennial kingdom. According to Ezekiel 44, which describes temple worship in the millennium, you don't hear about Levites ministering before God. You don't hear about the day of atonement. It's only the Zadokites, the descendants of Zadok, who was a descendant of Phinehas, who get to minister in the millennial temple. Why? Because the millennium is not a return to the Mosaic covenant. The Mosaic covenant is obsolete, according to Hebrews 8.13. This is a new covenant fulfillment of the blessing of God upon Phinehas. And so, given that, there are no verses about the priestly covenant in Hebrews. We're in this, again, we're in this intervening age that was a mystery to the Old Testament prophets. Now, the Davidic covenant is the promise from God in 2 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17 for God to raise up David's seed after him and to establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's God's promise that David will not lack a son to sit on the throne of Israel. And so where do we see that in Hebrews? There's a reference in chapter 1, verse 8. But of the Son, he says, of the Son, God says, your throne, O God. So here is God the Father calling God the Son, God. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. The Son is going to sit on the throne and rule in the Davidic kingdom. And then there are several quotes of Psalm 110 and verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That happened at the end of Jesus' first coming. He was anointed as the Davidic king by his resurrection from the dead, Acts chapter 2, verse 30. He is announced as the son of David who will rule on the throne of Israel forever. More about that in a moment. But he is not ruling on that throne of David just yet. Revelation 3, 21 key verse, says that Jesus ascended to heaven and sat down with the Father on the Father's throne. And then it says, it will be that those who overcome this evil age by faith will sit with Jesus on his throne, the throne of David, in the millennial kingdom. So Jesus distinguishes between my Father's throne, which I'm on now, and my, my own throne, which I will sit on when I come with the angels in glory, Matthew 25, 31. And so... Psalm 110.1, Jesus sat down while his enemies are subjected to him. That's what happened. Then Psalm 110 verse 2, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Jesus will rule over his enemies in Zion on the earth in the future because presently he is waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Chapter 2 says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. And then chapter 10 in Hebrews, I mean, chapter 10 and uh, verses 12 and 13 says that very thing. It's again an example of initial partial fulfillment. Christ has come as the promised son of David. He's gone into heaven to sit at the father's right hand and he waits. 
eventually he'll return to earth, rule the nations with that strong scepter, what Revelation 19 calls the, the rod of iron. And then we have the new covenant. And of course, you notice I've been moving very quickly to try to get you out on time. But the key passages here in the new covenant are Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33 and Ezekiel 36 and 37. Uh, Many others, but those are the main ones. Most explicit is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34, which actually gets quoted in its entirety in Hebrews chapter 8. And it says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? That was the Mosaic my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." So you see, the Mosaic Covenant was a mixed covenant community. They were made the people of God by circumcision, by belonging to the covenant nation. So that means some within God's people were unbelievers. And therefore, the believers within the covenant community had to evangelize the others. Hey, know the Lord, believe in Yahweh. But what God is saying here is in the new covenant, all who belong to that covenant by definition will know Yahweh. If you don't know Yahweh, you're not in the new covenant people, no matter what building you sit in, right? It's not being in the church building that makes you God's people the way that being in the nation of Israel made you God's people. It's new. It's different than that. It's having your sins forgiven, the spirit indwell you, the law written on your heart that makes you part of the covenant community. This covenant saves everyone to whom it extends. See similar themes in Ezekiel 36 I'll bring you into your land and I'll cleanse you from your filthiness. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put my spirit within you. And notice verse 28, you will live in the land. And verse 30, I will multiply the fruit of the tree. And so you see again, those spiritual promises of forgiveness and spirit indwelling right alongside the physical material promises of return to the land and multiplied produce for the blessings of the nations. You see that initial partial fulfillment that we spoke about. The fulfillment of spiritual blessings in that promise does not negate the fulfillment of the material and spiritual blessings for Israel when Christ comes and restores them. You understand why some would suggest that, right? Well, the new covenant makes these promises. Clearly, the New Testament is telling you that the new covenant promises are being fulfilled in those who are saved and sins forgiven and spirit indwelling there. Well, what about these other promises that went right alongside those new covenant spiritual promises of salvation? Well, those were just uh, spiritual symbols that illustrate or figurative symbols that illustrate the spiritual salvation of the church. No, it's both. And, and when you say, well, only one of them came true, well, you don't respond. Well, the others just aren't going to come true or they came true in some shadowy figurative way. No, some of them came true initially and partially at the first coming and they come true finally and completely at the second coming. And I can't leave out Luke twenty-two twenty, Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 prophesy the coming of the new covenant. Jesus shows up on the eve of the Passover 
right before he's betrayed. And he says, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. This new covenant that you Israelites have been waiting for for the last 600 years, Jesus says, that's here in me. The blood of this covenant is my blood, which I will spill tomorrow for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the blood you need to be sprinkled with, which are just astounding statements by Jesus. It's it's ridiculous to suggest he was a great moral teacher and no more. Good moral teachers don't tell you to trust in their blood for salvation. God can do that. Uh, Good moral teachers ought to point to that. So how can I be sprinkled with your blood, Lord? Well, you need to turn from your sin. You need to repent of your own self-righteousness. You need to put all your trust in my blood to purchase the forgiveness that Jeremiah and Ezekiel promised six centuries ago. And key verses in Hebrews, again, everywhere. Better covenant, better promises, a new covenant. Put the laws within their heart, their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. It is just everywhere. And you see the, the key passages I've, I've printed for you in the handout, 8, 6 to 13, 9, 15, 10, 14, 18, 12, 22 to 24 being the highlights. Now I have just a few more minutes, and in those minutes, I just want to talk briefly about fulfillment. I've spoken about it already, but I kind of want to bring it to a head and really focus your eyes on Christ and, and exalt his supremacy in all of this. So what is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant? In Luke 1, 54 and 55 as a response to the promised birth of Christ spoken by the angel, Mary sings in her Magnificat, God has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants, his seed forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And then Zacharias in his song It says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father. You see, Jesus shows up and and Mary and Zacharias and Elizabeth, they are consumed with the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled. Then in Galatians 3, starting in verse 7, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So now we're hearing that the Abrahamic covenant is something of a proto-gospel, a gospel preached beforehand to Abraham that all the nations will be blessed in you. And that blessing is happening, that universal blessing of all the nations is happening right now in the salvation of the of people from every nation just look in this room and you see the fulfillment of that promise in verse 9 galatians 3 so those who are of faith are blessed with abraham the believing one notice not those who are obedient to the mosaic covenant not those who offer the levitical sacrifices but the believers in the once for all sacrifice of christ that's why we don't do or observe the Jewish feasts or ceremonies any longer. But Paul says, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be no benefit to you. And then Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. 
So Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. We see the fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant in that same passage in Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. For as many are as of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. You see the contrast. He who does these things will live by them. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So we've all sinned. We've all failed to obey God's good commands. And we therefore bear the curse. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But what is What has Christ done? He has redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, by hanging on that tree that we deserve to hang on. In order, look at it, verse 14, that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled not by the Mosaic covenant, but the new covenant, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we receive the promise of the Spirit, Jeremiah 31, through faith. And then Davidic covenant, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. See, when you read the Christmas story, we just came out of this season. I want you to see the baby Jesus is fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant in Mary and Zacharias' song, and he's filling the Davidic covenant in the angel's announcement. All of the sort of the streams, the tributaries of covenant promise find their coalescence in this little baby who is king of the universe. It's just astounding. And I'll end with a verse in Hebrews celebrating the superiority of the new covenant. So I've just gone through Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, uh, new covenant, which we partake in by union to Christ. So it's likely that none of you are tempted to go home and build an altar in your backyard and find a bull and slit its throat and sprinkle its blood on the altar, right? You're likely not tempted to worship God according to the Mosaic covenant. But what in kind are we all tempted to do? We are all tempted to worship God legally, right? To rely on our own self-atoning acts of penance to curry favor with God by our spiritual performance. Well, if I can feel bad enough about this sin, then God will receive my penance and he'll, uh, he'll uh, welcome me back into his presence. No, We're all born Pharisees, right? That the nature of our hearts is to justify ourselves before God by our good works. It's why so many people say, what do you mean I'm not going to heaven? I'm a good person, right? I do right by my family. I don't kill anybody. I don't steal things. You know, I'm a good guy or a good girl, good woman. So God is cool with me. God should be fine with me. The new covenant, you understand, is the death of all of that talk. All self-righteousness has to fall by the wayside in front of the new covenant. The gospel is that nothing you can do can save you. Your salvation must be based on the doing and the dying of another. Your substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what has he done? What, what he's done can only be received 
through faith alone, through a renunciation of yourself and a, and, and a renunciation of any claim you think you have on goodness or righteousness. And, and it must, you must be trusting in him alone for righteousness. That's the new covenant. And we see it in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, which is just astounding. I mean, it deserves its own sermon. The imagery is just something else. But, but look at this passage. Again, remember, you who are tempted to, to hide out and go back to Judaism, you who are tempted to forsake, it is finished for the hamster wheel of self-righteousness. Look at this. But you, and he's, and he's talking to, to Jewish Christians. This applies to you as much as it did to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. He says, you got the fulfillment of Judaism. Why would you go back? And to us, he says, you've come to something so much better than your own good works. You've come to a righteousness so much more perfect than whatever you could drum up. You've come, look at it, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you've come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood, not even of Moses on the books, but speaks better than the blood of Abel, Abel's sacrifice in Genesis 4, which God had regard for. So much regard that Cain was moved to jealousy to kill his brother. It's Jesus' blood speaks better even than that. You have so much better than your own good works to trust in. So much better than your own self-atonement by your religious performance. You've got Jesus, the great high priest and apostle of our confession. And so look to him as your perfect and sufficient sacrifice for salvation for con- and for continuing growth in holiness. So 1059, remember the covenants. They yield great blessings to God's people as they study them. And I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the, the grand sweep of redemptive history, the precious treasure of your word that invites us to study long and hard and to see you in the pages of the unfolding of your promise throughout all of human history. And we thank you that, that you've given us these checkpoints of covenants to see how you work to guide us along the way. And we, and we praise you for how they all find their great fulfillment in the person of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom you've given as head, over all things to the church. And we pray that uh, you would indeed subdue Christ's enemies, that you would put them all under his feet by your wise governance of providence, that you would save the elect, that you would bring your people into the fold of the good shepherd, and that you would then send him to return for us, that the judgment might fall upon the world. And then only a few years after that, that we would all come and reign on the, the, the earth in righteousness, that Christ would have that scepter and that he would rule from Jerusalem over all the nations of the earth uh, in a way that he is worthy of. And until that time, may we walk in a way that he is worthy of. May we be faithful worshipers of him for such things. May we be uh, those who walk uh, obediently after him. May we be good witnesses who uh, testify to this coming king, who, though rightly angry, is willing to make terms of peace with those who are yet his enemies. And we, and we would invite all to come to him through repentance and faith alone. Uh, I pray that you would uh, stir up the lady's desire to understand these things even more deeply 
And I pray that they would worship you more uh, fittingly uh, because of this last hour. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.